Thank you for that reading. Let's just pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we come to your living word this morning, would you ignite us with your holy fire so that we may learn to love you more dearly? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're starting a new series in Mark's Gospel. Actually, it's not Mark's Gospel at all, but the Gospel according to Mark. And that's an important distinction to get hold of, because for the first Christians, it would have been a great surprise if you'd given them a book which said Gospel. For them, Gospel meant the Gospel message, the good news. And these early accounts about the good news of Jesus the Saviour, well, they came orally from eyewitnesses. But as the eyewitnesses began dying out, there was an increasing urgency to preserve these personal accounts about Jesus for three reasons. One, to communicate the gospel message to non-believers, and then to teach us followers more about their faith. But there was a third reason, so that there would be a permanent written record that could be spread further afield. And these Gospels weren't simply a biography of Jesus' life. They were really a theological proclamation, and they were aimed at a particular audience. So that's just a brief background to the Gospels. So who was Mark? Well, the author of Mark's, his original Hebrew name was John. Mark was a name, a Latin name, that was added much later. He was a Jewish Christian, he lived in Jerusalem with Mary, his mother, during the days of the early, early church. He wasn't actually an eyewitness of Jesus as such, but he was in close contact with the Apostle Peter. And it's thought that as Peter preached, as Peter went round and preaching, John Mark wrote all these things down. It's, as you know, it's the first of the four Gospels. It was written in Rome and it was written to the Gentiles, to Roman Christians. Because although the Christians in Rome had already heard and believed the good news, they needed to hear it again with new emphasis to catch afresh the implications for their lives. Mark's aim is to help us Christians understand the nature of discipleship. So this new series is a great idea for refreshing our own faith. Let's begin by looking at verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Greek title Christos, or Christ, only became part of Jesus' personal name later on in early Christian usage. But by combining the word Christos, with the word euangelion, which is the Greek word for good news, Mark gives us his main theme. Jesus, the Christos, the anointed one, is the Messiah anticipated by the Jewish world, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. But also for Mark's Greek-speaking Romans, Jesus was also the euangelion, and that was the good news. And you see, that was a term that they would use for good news events, such as, for instance, the enthronement of a new emperor. Then Mark adds the title, Son of God. 
And that points to a unique relationship with God. He's fully man, Jesus, but he's also fully divine, God's special agent, the Christos, or Messiah. So already in these first few verses, we get this really exciting message coming over. And then moving on to verses 2 and 3, Mark now puts his account into a scriptural context. Verse 2, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. For Mark's readers and listeners, this is very much a unifying theme. The idea of wilderness or desert was very strongly in their tradition. And although he's quoting from Isaiah, he's actually, he's actually only quoting from Isaiah in verse 3. Verse 2 is really a blend of Exodus 23 and Malachi 3. So what he does, he's quite clever really, what he's done, he's given these Old Testament uh, quotes a bit of a tweak to sort of give them a messianic interpretation. Well, one of Mark's key themes is to highlight the nature of Christian discipleship. So he emphasizes the word way because it's the way that we all travel as disciples. Then we come to verse 4. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, absolutely delicious. If you haven't tried them, I had them for breakfast this morning. But this idea of waiting around, on the whole, we're not really that good at waiting around for things to happen, are we? We're not really that good at waiting around. But can you imagine what it was like for all those crowds that flocked out to hear John the Baptist? You see, they'd never heard of Jesus. All those exciting healings, all those great, inspiring, life-changing teachings, they hadn't yet happened. They're living in an occupied state, under Roman rule, with an unpredictable world leader. Might be a parallel for us there. I'll leave you to work that one out. They've been waiting for years for the Messiah to show up. Only he hasn't appeared. And the prophets, the prophets who predicted him, they've disappeared a long, long time ago too. And now even God for them, now even God for them seems to have forgotten his chosen people. Then a rumor goes around about some weird guy out in the desert who could be a prophet with a message to sort out the Romans. So they flock out to see, see what it's all about. And there's John, he's dressed in camel hair and leather, which is exactly the same outfit that the prophet Elijah had worn 800 years before. And that was a prophet they knew all about. So for them, John was the messenger all right. 
and the city dwellers of Jerusalem were drawn to him like a moth to the flame. Not because of what he was, not even because of what he said, but because of what he offered them, his baptism, a chance to come clean, to stop pretending they were someone else, to start over again by allowing him to wash them off in the river. That bit, that was his idea. There weren't any rules about how it was supposed to be done. The rabbis certainly hadn't okayed it. It was just something that John offered those who came to him. Even women, women who were never allowed in the same precincts in the temple, even well-known sinners who would never have dreamt of going anywhere near the temple, John's baptism bypassed all the temple rituals. He called people to wake up, to turn around, so they wouldn't miss the new thing that God was doing right before their eyes. You see, baptism for Jews wasn't a new innovation. Gentiles who wanted to be admitted to Judaism had to be baptized by self-admersion. So it wasn't a new thing for them. But what was so startling about John's baptism was that he was saying that God's covenant people, the chosen one, the Jews, they needed it too. That it required a visible witness of repentance, a turning about, a deliberate change of mind and direction. Now, of course, the crowds that flogged out, flocked out to the desert, they were very familiar with their nation's history. They knew that as a nation, they'd fallen short of God's demands. And their willingness to be baptized by John was an admission of their disobedience. So let's have a look at verse 7. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and tie. Thank you for reading that version. Uh, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and tie. A few years ago, Rosemary and I and Marion Peters were leading an alpha group up in the coffee lounge. And it was an alpha group made up of foreign students for whom English was not their first language. So they were struggling a bit with, with the text. And we came to this particular verse, and you could see they were struggling with it. And then after a while, there was a sort of, sort of eureka moment and one of the students said, ah, yes, thongs. I know about thongs. Yesterday, I go into Guildford, I go into Primani, and I see sign, ladies, thongs. <laughs> Marion Peters, as many of you will know, is a very upright church warden and a justice of the peace. And the look on her face was priceless. <laughs> But bless her, she explained the difference between ladies' thongs and these thongs. But just to share that story with you. Anyway, on to verse 8. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, for the Jews on the bank of the Jordan, the, the bestowal of the Holy Spirit was an expected feature of the Messiah's coming. They would have read about it in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, and in Joel. And it's the same for us. When we stand in Christ, when we stand in Christ, the Holy Spirit 
joins with our spirit to empower us for Christian service. Then we come to verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Which, of course, begs the question, why did Jesus need to be baptized at all? Because he was without sin. Why did he need to be baptized? Well, I'd like to suggest three reasons. Firstly, he agreed to be baptized as an act of obedience, showing he was in full agreement with God's plan, and God's plan included John's baptism. And then secondly, he did it as an act of self-identification. Jesus simply turns up, he joins the queue of sinners, and he waits for his turn to be baptized. And by doing that, he's identifying himself with the Jewish nation. So he does it as an act of obedience, as an act of self-identification, identifying with the Jewish nation, and then thirdly, as an act of self-identification. He is dedicating himself, he is saying, this is my official entrance into my messianic mission. Three reasons then, an act of obedience, identifying with the Jews, and then saying, this is the start of my mission. And I think we can draw some parallels there, because in the same way, when we seek God, when we seek to follow his mission, then we too need to stand in the queue as sinners with sinners. In the same way, we need to stand in the queue as sinners with sinners when we dedicate ourselves to God's mission. And then verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And, voice, and verse 11, and a, vo a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Three things now set Jesus apart from everybody else who's been baptized. Firstly, he saw a heaven being opened and the spirit descending like a dove. He saw heaven being opened. And that's a metaphor, really, for God breaking into human experience. Last Sunday, we had a testimony from Miles, you may remember it, and at the APGM, Arthur very bravely came up and gave his testimony as well. Bless you for that, Arthur. Thank you for that. For both Miles and for Arthur, God had broken into their lives. And I had that same experience all those years ago when I walked into the back of this church, off the street, and I heard the gospel, and God broke into my life. He transformed my life by the power of the gospel. And God still breaks into human lives today when spirit-filled Christians share the gospel truth. 1 Peter 3 says, Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And then three, Jesus sees the Spirit ascending on him like a dove. Roel Amundsen was a 19th century Norwegian explorer. He was very famous, actually, because he discovered both poles, the North and South Pole. 
But he spent a long time away from his wife, and there were no phones in those days, no mobile phones. And on one of his trips, he took a pigeon with him. And when he got right to the top of the world, he let the pigeon go. He let the pigeon go free. And many weeks later, many weeks later, can you imagine the delight of his wife back in Norway when one morning she looked up from her doorway and she saw the same pigeon circling around in the sky. And she cried out, he's alive, my husband's alive. And you see that same spirit that descended on Jesus is given to us to remind us too that Jesus is still very much alive. It's the same dove-like spirit that descended at Pentecost, transforming the disciples, and it's the same spirit that empowers our lives. Mind you, there's a rather interesting story. Remember, I'm remembering the Alpha course, which we were all on. On the Alpha course, they tell this story about this rather formal state church in central London. They didn't really give much place to the Holy Spirit. And there was a woman there who had just become a Christian, and she was really excited because what she just experienced in the Holy Spirit, and in the middle of a rather formal servant, a service, she shouted out, Hallelujah! And the church warden who was standing at the back came up and tapped her on the shoulder, and he said, Madam, you mustn't say that here. And she said, but I'm so excited. She said, I've just got religion. And he said, well, you didn't get it here, madam. <laughs> but fortunately, that's, that's not true of St. Savers. You certainly can experience God, God's Holy Spirit here. As Paul tells the Thessalonians, our, gos our gospel came to you simply with word, not with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And then thirdly, Jesus hears the Father's words of a voice, words of approval in verse 11. You're my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Those words come straight out of Isaiah, where God addresses his chosen servant as the one in whom he delights, the one in whom he has put his spirit, and the one who will suffer greatly as the sacrificial lamb. And there's an important point to make here, because you see, Jesus didn't become the Son of God at his baptism. He didn't become the Son of God at his baptism. He didn't change his divine status but it did limit it. He already was the Logos, the Son of God from the beginning of time. But in order to be fully human, he relinquishes his omnipresence, being everywhere at the same time. He relinquishes his omnipresence, being everywhere at the same time. And he relinquishes his omniscience, his all-knowingness. Mark 13, 32 says, but about that day or hour, Jesus says, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son. He didn't know about that particular hour when he was coming again. He relinquished his all-knowingness. And he did it so that in his bodily incarnation, 
he could become the promised one, the Messiah. You see, these are his credentials. And in the same way, our credentials are established when we are baptized into faith and when we receive the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. It's that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Immediately after his baptism, verses 12 and 13, Jesus is given a strong moral compulsion through the Spirit to take offensive action against temptation and evil. Verse 12, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Where the Spirit led him off to? The Spirit led him off to what was known as a traditional temptation site, a site where it was recognized that Satan ruled. It was sort of northwest of the Dead Sea, probably west of Jericho. And you see, God, by putting him to this very physical test straight away, God is showing us that he is practically qualified for his mission. The wild animals are examples of, of the nature of that hostile area, but also that he was cared for, he was cared for by the angels. Mark's account of the wilderness experience is brief. He's, con he's concerned to show us that the, this is the beginning of a conflict with Satan and his forces, which will only climax in the cross. So just to conclude, what lessons can we draw from this am amazing gospel? Well, Mark's aim is for us to understand more about the nature of our role as disciples of Christ. What exactly it means to follow Jesus, how he cares for all his disciples in the light of what he's done for us. And in our own journey of faith, in our own journey of faith, so the message of John precedes the message of Jesus. In our own journey of faith, the message of John precedes the message of Jesus. Firstly, there is a changed attitude of the will. Then comes faith through baptism into new birth by water and the power of the Spirit. The two are indivisible. Now, I know when I'd walked into the back of this church, I'd never had any church background, I'd never read the Bible, and when people started preaching about the power of the Spirit, I, it was really very puzzling. What, is it, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You all have your own experiences. But let me just share mine, if I may. <clears throat> For me, Jesus manifests the fruit of the Spirit perfectly throughout his lifetime. The fruit of the Spirit are, the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Mike, I mean, what a congregation! Did you put it? Did you put it up, Lauren? Ah, oh. that, that's kindness for you. There's the fruit of the Spirit. That's real kind. What a nice job. Well, 
I just try, just, just to tell you my own experience, I try and manifest the fruit of the Spirit imperfectly in my daily life. That's the, my first experience of the Spirit. My second experience is that I have been blessed when others have ministered to me in the fruit of the Spirit. And then thirdly, there have been times when I've been going through really difficult patches, really difficult times. And at those times, I know that fellow Christians have prayed for me, but they've also sometimes shared a supernatural word of knowledge that nobody else would have known. They certainly would have known, but I know that it was something God knew about what was going on. And then fourthly, I'd just say that I've seen God's Spirit move in people's lives through the power of answered prayer. So that's just really my own experience of the power of the Spirit, of the infilling of the Spirit, and you'll have your own experiences too. Romans 8 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. So I think the message of this wonderful opening gospel passage is this, that John the Baptist saw what we must see, that religion symbolized by water on its own is never enough. We also need to be set on fire by the Spirit of God. Jesus was anointed with a spirit before he commenced his life work. How much more must we be? With, with Easter only just behind us and Pentecost ahead, perhaps this is a good time to remind ourselves of some of these great gospel truths, that we are united with Christ in his death, made one with him in his resurrection, anointed and filled with the same spirit that descended on him. In this way, identifying with Christ by sharing with him in his ministry of reconciliation, we can love God, love other people, and we can make a difference. It's the sort of difference that Miles and Arthur and I can tell you all about. Amen. <laughs>